The Anchored City Podcast is recorded in Anchorage, Alaska, on the traditional lands of the Denina Athabascan people. I have heard the oldest stories that the wisest man never told. And I cast aside my worries And just went digging for gold And I will scale the highest mountains Looking for the bluest blue Welcome to the Anchored City Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Kiekenfeld. We are currently between seasons, and this is the first of our Between the Seasons episodes. We'll be doing a number of these episodes sporadically between now and our new season in the fall. The mission of this podcast is to connect with Anchorage's soul through her histories, stories, and people. Today we will focus on the history part of that mission as we talk with Anchorage historian David Reamer. Reamer writes the weekly Histories of Anchorage column in the Anchorage Daily News. He also tweets daily about Alaska history. You can follow those tweets at at ANC underscore historian. Reamer's work has informed this podcast, and we highly value the way he's bringing Anchorage history to light. We are so excited to have him as a guest. Without further introduction, here's my conversation with David Reamer. That I have yet to cross, and I have dreamed of faraway places where imagination just gets lost and I would search the wide world over for one proverb that is true but of all the roads My name is David Reamer. I'm a historian, um, academic and public historian um, distinctions which are important to me. I write a weekly history column for the Anchorage Daily News. I am solo writing a more public history-minded history of Anchorage at a community level. So, you know, a chapter on Government Hill, a chapter on Fairview, Spinard, Mountain View, et cetera. And I'm also co-writing an academic history of, a black history of Anchorage with Ian Hartman of UAA. Uh, We signed the contract last week with University of Washington Press. And I'm also, involved in several other research projects, um, LGBT homeless, food banks, um, early social work history. (laughs) Great. Before we get specifically into Anchorage history, I'd love to just hear about what attracted you to being a historian and what does a historian um, look like for you um, at this point in time? Um. I don't think I've ever shared this story. Uh, it was while I was at UAA and I wasn't as certain on my major. I was pretty sure what I wanted to do after graduating, which was macro level social work. Um, so not at all what I'm doing now. Although this could always transition to a more policy oriented thing, but I was an English major technically, but the history major was going to be a quicker path to graduation. I needed less, you know, less classes in that curriculum to, to graduate. Um, I'll have to tell my mentor that before this comes out, <laughs> my history mentor. Um, and then I just 
I love the aspect of history where you get to search and try and find the answer to like, well, what happened? What was the rest of the story? Uh, which is exactly something, you know, my wife is a social worker, teaches social work now. In social work, you don't get to know the end of the story often. You know, person passes from your care, you reference them, you, you give them to someone else. In history, you can try your best to find like the rest of the story. What was the bigger context? What was really happening? What happened next? Why did this happen before and afters and surrounding? Um, and I enjoyed that. And I've been very personally drawn to more hidden histories that have not been touched on before, which given the state of Alaska's historiography is a really wide open field. You could write histories of Alaska and Anchorage that haven't been touched on before for the rest of your life. Right. So I know you from the weekly column in the daily news, and that's probably how other folks, if they're aware of your work, maybe know it as well. Yeah. <laughs> how did that column come about? How did, how did a weekly history column end up being something that you were doing with the, with the Anchorage daily news? Um, so I am very influenced still by the old desire to be a social worker and my historical idols are ancient social workers and activists, people like Ida B. Wells and Jane Addams. I'm inspired by my wife who's, you know, done personal practice. Um, so I've always believed that an aspect of history typically neglected is like the public engagement. So, well, I value academic history, that very strict interacting with the past historians and you know, correcting narratives. Also thought there's a better value in, or not better value, but an additional value that could be gained in targeting it to you know, the greater public, people outside that circle of historians, editing historians, you know, ad infinitum. So I started writing um, a series of little local histories on uh, Nextdoor, the, um, you know, little neighborhood level social media in town. I was limited to people in my community and, you know, the two neighborhoods in any direction. So I was writing little neighborhood histories there, you know, 500 to 1,000 words. This is a story of Chester Creek. This is a story of Valley of the Moon. And a couple of news agencies noticed and started offering me jobs after a few months. And, um, I was quite happy when the ADN, they were reading me apparently, a couple of people with ADN, um, um, head editor David Hewlin and my specific editor, Victoria Barber, who does the features, they had read me, they liked it. They saw a place for this in the ADN and they reached out and asked me to. Um, and then eventually I let the, the next door material die. It was a, too much of a burden, but I have also added a Twitter account where I post daily Alaska history with an admittedly Anchorage focus. Right on. So looking at, and I've been reading your, your column off and on most Mondays I read it. So I, I know that like you've covered all kinds of things from like baseball to like you said, mud flats when we first started our conversation and civil rights and the first police chief getting murdered and WWF wrestling and kind of like all over the place. Um, which I love. I love that. I, I have no idea what's coming next, but I guess the question I would have is like, what's been like one of your favorite stories to work on? Something that just was just fascinating. Um, to their credit, the ADN has very much allowed me to write about whatever I want. So I'm following 
my interest to their other limits. Um, even, you know, even spread it somewhat outside of Anchorage. I try and maintain Anchorage focus. I actually drifted away from them the last couple of weeks because there were stories I wanted to tell for a very specific reason. Um, two stories really stand out that I had the most fun writing. One was wrestling, um, which um, I, I grew up in the South. I grew up as a wrestling fan. And I was just delighted that I had come across this angle of writing a history of wrestling in Anchorage article, like an interesting angle, one that had enough meat, you know, to get a, you know, full 1500 words out of. Um, interesting story that had not been written about before. Um, that's also very important to me. Um, I've never talked about it, like in the articles themselves, but everything I write has to have for me. Um, either entire or some aspect that has not been written about before. So even in like a well-known story, um, I'll only write about it if there's something I can add. Um, like the, I wrote about Neil McKay and the murder of the files, uh, the car bombing, the shooting death of her brother, but no one had seemed to pick up on this judge who had done an interview talking about how he was afraid Neil McKay had hired an assassin to kill him. So things like that I can add straight. But no one had written this WWF story. It was just so much fun. I didn't see anyone else who would ever write this story. Um, it pleased me to get a story out that I would never have any other place to do so. The other story I had the most fun writing was the Mudflat story. Uh, it was seriously the first legend I heard when I moved to Anchorage was the Mudflats killing people. And it was helicopters ripping people in half, trying to lift them out of the mud. Um, I heard one about a wedding party that went onto the mud flats for that perfect Alaska photo shoot and all died. And I thought to myself at the time, something like, these are really neat. These are colorful. It would be fun to track that back and see what really happened. These couldn't have happened. And they didn't. But as it turned out, the real history was even darker and more hideous interesting and colorful and illuminating and possibly didactic in a way, but just absolutely horrifying tale that hadn't been told in decades, you know, of people trying to help someone who got caught in the mud, but just having to watch them drown as the water and the tide slowly rose above them and the bubble stopped. Horrifying, nightmarish stuff. Um, but at the same time, a story that explained legends and explained myths of the town, gave a factual basis for these legends, and also maybe warned people that the mudflats are super deadly and don't go out there unless you know what you're doing. Yeah, good advice. And those were legends I heard when I moved here too, like all these stories about the mudflats, many of which are not true. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but the danger is real for sure. What's something as you've researched Anchorage history, like what's something that surprised you as you've kind of dug into it? Like what's one of those things where you're like, oh, I didn't see that coming. Um, when I first started taking history, my the very first subject that I thought I would study, um, well, I had two in mind. I thought maybe I would study early social work history and maybe specialize in Chicago, 1890s, 19, you know, Gilded Era Chicago. Uh, progressive era Chicago. And then I also thought, oh, Roman history is really interesting. Roman history is beaten into the ground unless you're, you know, very up to date and, you know, 
modern archaeological, anthropological, and DNA evidence. Um, same way Chicago has been other aspects of it that are less well known and less documented and less represented in the history, it's still well trod. <laughs> there are, you know, too many Chicago history books, even of this era. Um, so then, you know, local history. And then, you know, the same way people ask me questions about Alaska, I wanted to know the place. I wanted to have a connection to the place where I was living. Um, I started looking at it, and the thing that really struck out to me was the diversity, the diversity that was here in Anchorage. Now, black ethnoburbs, Denina fishing camps, uh, multiple Korean language newspapers, tamales and chow mein being available in 1915 Anchorage, you know, being some of the more common foods. And as part of that surprise was the fact that you could see this in the source material, but you're not going to really see that at all in the histories of Anchorage. And it was surprising, it was depressing. It was an opportunity. That's um, why I'm co-writing a Black history. It's why I've included um, some aspects of history. I could do more of Anchorage history that have not been documented before. The nasty backstory of the person of who, you know, the Glen Highway is named after. He tortured Filipinos, uh, which is interesting considering the large Filipino population in the town. You know, the history of Black protest. Um, eventually, I may write about some of the Black interactions with police, which have gone terribly. Um, aspects of like that, getting that into the history, getting the history so that the written record is as diverse as the reality was. So in light of that, I wonder, is there a story that you're still hoping to tell? Like, is there one that's sitting out there still sort of maybe um, not really on the back burner, but simmering away that you're waiting to tell? Um, there is one I'm waiting to tell. Um, me and my co-author, Ian Harmon, it, this is in our history book. It's in a journal article we wrote, but talking about the difference between public and academic and where people may, would have actually heard of me. Um, we had a journal article that touched on this topic, the creation and destruction of a black community in Anchorage. And we touched on the 1964 earthquake. This was in a very nice journal. It's a very you know strong academic credit, but not that many people have read that. Last I looked, I think less than 50 people had read it, the digital version. Um, which is depressing. But um, around the time, uh, next month, around the time of the anniversary of the earthquake, I'm hoping to write about the other side of the story. When you hear about the 1964 earthquake, you hear about very specific parts of town, right? You hear about Turnigan, you hear about the inlet, you hear about downtown. Even in 1964, the town was much bigger than that. Have you heard much about what was going on in Fairview in 1964? or Russian Jack, or Spinard. Well, a lot of the communities out there were communities where minorities were allowed to live. Um, Turnigan was a closed community, a restricted community. It's written into the plats, you know, white people only. These were the richest communities. So it was also this 
How can I say this? So there's a concept called environmental justice, that everyone has an equal right to quality of land, quality of environment. However, the corollary is, is that those with those less empowered populations, the poor, minorities, LGBT, typically end up on land or have often ended up on land that has negative environmental factors, more uh, pollution, um, other aspects that can cause like higher rates of cancer. We see in the villages without water. Um, I apologize, I don't know how to say Tuluksuk. Um, they can't drink the water because the river is poisoned <laughs> from mining. That's the very current example. But in Anchorage, it went opposite of the way it normally does. Like in Hurricane Katrina, the poorest wards were some of those that were hardest hit and slowest to recover. Well, in Anchorage during the earthquake, it was the reverse. The richest communities were hit hardest and the poorer minority communities were escaped with some shaking and a few cracks in the walls. Business continued. Um, Wally Hickel, he, you know, future Alaska governor, twice um, secretary of the interior, he lived in Turnigan. He was out of the country at the time, he was in Japan, but his family during the earthquake, they fled to the hotel he had built in Fairview, the Traveler's Inn, now the travel inn of much diminished uh, reputation, shall we say. In its day, it was a much more high-end place with a very high-end restaurant, fancy chefs. So he went to Fairview. And in Fairview, the you know poorer, um, one of the you know relatively few areas in town a black community could go to, they endured the earthquake just fine. I've, there are some anecdotes like a ceiling tile fell at a black realtor on 15th Street, the first black church in the state, Greater Friendship on Ingra. They were having weddings that next weekend. They were fine. But the story you generally hear of the earthquake is the utter demolishing of Turnigan, you know, of homes sliding into the end of, you know, Fourth Avenue being wrecked. There's this other story complicated by factors of race and exclusion and economic opportunity. And I'm hoping to write an article that touches on a large aspect of that next month. Yeah, that's fascinating. That's history I didn't know either because the way the story is told is often the pictures we've all seen of Fourth Avenue, a mess and turn again and, you know, big cracks sort of at the end of the park strip and those type of things, but only those are kind of the images that are burned into everybody's collective memory. So that's fascinating. Yeah, I know what in just the you know western end of the park strip, the long right, yeah. strip. Yes. Yeah. So I know one of the things that you do in your column is there's these um, columns where people write in questions, and I know at the end of every one they're asking for kind of feedback too of like, what do you want to hear about kind of thing. So what are the questions that folks ask you about history in Anchorage, either informally or sort of formally? Um, it sounds like you, you get asked a number of questions just sort of in your everyday life as well, but what are people interested in in, in the history of Anchorage? Um, yeah, the question aspect was something I asked to have added in the ADN went with. Um, it wasn't part of the, their original concept for the, you know, having a weekly history column. But um, to go back a little, academic versus public history, if that's okay. Academic history, the historian decides the story. 
you know, however obscure, if the historian picks it, says it's relevant to the history, it's making some intervention in the historiography, go do it. It'd be some very minor otherwise thing, but you get to pick the narrative. You get to pick the story of the topic. Public history as a field allows and involves the public in deciding the storylines. Um, and part of that is in very specific picking the topics, but also influencing the type of topics of having feedback in the process. So the questions. Um, actually, every week I usually spend most of Monday answering the questions from that week's column. Um, sometimes longer. <laughs> sometimes it'll take me a week to catch up on that week's uh, questions until the next column comes out and I, it starts all over. Most of them are some combination of why is it called that? You know, what's that building? I mean, if when I'm in person, the far, far majority of the time if someone asks me a question, I find out I'm a historian, they'll ask me, what's the story of that? And then I'll point to some seemingly to me random building. And I'll go, I'm sorry, I don't know the story of random building. It probably was a house and people lived there and that's its story. But if, if you look at them collectively, there is this desire to get closer to their town. It's um, like you go on a date with someone. You want to build empathy. You want to build a relationship. You try and get to know each other. You ask questions. Knowing things about each other builds the relationship, builds your pause, builds your connections. It is my belief that knowing more about your town, knowing where it came from, why, it is the way it is, even down to why is it Whitney Street? Why is it Spadard Road? These build a connection to the town, makes you more attached to the town, makes you maybe more willing to support the town in times of need, you know, to engage in the town in positive ways because now you have a connection to the place. In the same way, you're more likely to help a friend than a complete stranger. Maybe not you precisely, but people in the middle, let's say. Um, Obviously, other questions I get are genealogical. Uh, the most common type of amateur history is genealogy. People want to know where their family came from. So I get questions helping out like that. Uh, very, very rarely do I get anything beyond some story like that. Of like, no one, the public is rarely interested in broad themes and theories crossing decades. They simply don't ask me questions about things like that. Of some, like what is the last the nature of Alaska's relationship with the federal government over time? That's that's a historian question. People write books about that. That's not what people ask me about history. That's fascinating because I mean, one of the reasons we're doing this podcast is we want people to be able to connect with Anchorage and build those sort of affinity for the city. So that's part of the reason history has become part of it is we want to do exactly what you're saying people are interested in doing is how do I connect with the city? How do I get to know it more? Um, but my next question is about sort of broader themes. Like I'd, I'd love to hear um, what you as a historian think of, like what does Anchorage's history have to say to us this hundred years of history, like what are some of the themes or lessons that we can look at and kind of learn from, um, from, from the history, from the people that have been here before and are here now? Um, I'm, I'm usually of two minds when it comes to histories, including the history of Anchorage. On one hand, it can be 
liberating and calming to have a historical perspective on things. You you look back across the past and, you know, most of the past is actually very mundane, people living their lives. But the markers are going to be your disasters, your massive changes in society. And if you have a historical perspective, you look back, it can just look like an unending line of catastrophes. You know, war and disease repeating forever. You know, back to the beginning of recording. But despite that, it can still be calming because you can see that despite that, another morning is almost always guaranteed. Life has survived past an unbelievable, if you condensed all the tragedies that have occurred in history, just the ones that are recorded, not the ones that have disappeared or been forgotten, marginalized populations that have been lost on purpose, just those that are known is such a collected mass that it is heartwarming to know we're still here and that tomorrow will probably still be here. On the other hand, I'm often depressed by history in that this unending series of disasters means that, okay, we haven't really changed. Um, this is actually, it goes to an aspect of historical analysis I, I find very important that people are this generally the same, you know, they're the same now the further back you go, the context is going to change. They're not going for coffee, they're doing something different. But, you know, within the realm of Alaska, Anchorage has a much more modern, limited history. Um, when I'm just speaking about settler Anchorage in that aspect, it's not a city like, you know, St. Augustine or Rome that can go back centuries. The, you see people do the same things. You see people act out of ignorance, act violently, impulsively, um, deeply, deeply heartbreaking ways. 100 years ago, 50 years ago, yesterday and today and tomorrow, you see people acting in ways that they should know better, that other people did know better, but they did not access or act upon that information. And that's frustrating, you know, to write about some terrible event, hope it has some lesson in it, and to also know that history is going to happen regardless. So you, you would hope that people would seek, um, you know, experts in the field, seek some sort of logical consistency, apply uh, rational thinking processes. But that's not really a thing. Uh, you've probably seen those things about, um, they come out every few years. You see those articles about like people don't know history today. Teens today don't know history. That's been going on since the 40s at least. There have been these articles, like nothing is new. <laughs> nothing is new. The people who are complaining about teens not knowing history are, themselves do not know the history of people not knowing history. Um, uh, for an anecdote, in 1918, during the Spanish flu was at its height in Alaska, uh, the Douglas newspaper had this list of advice they published. I really love it. And it was mainly ways to avoid contacting the Spanish flu, although there are some certain life lessons they put in there. And one item on the list said, do not disregard the advice of a specialist just because you do not understand. 
you know, I mean, he still needs to be an expert in the field. You know, yes, a historian for history, but the expert in the whatever field for that field, not a chiropractor about epidemiology. So, so a question I usually ask towards the end of an interview is like, what am I missing? What is there about history or about Anchorage history that you would add that I haven't asked you about? So asked a few different questions, but is there anything you would add or something that you would share um, in that way? Uh, I feel like you've been very thorough in your questions. I've tried to answer at length. Um, I guess I would continue in the vein that for whatever relatively small inroads like I've made and a few other people have made in diversifying the history of Anchorage, the reality is still far dirtier and far more diverse than any surviving account would have you believe. Um, and it's just something to be, that I would hope people would be aware of. So my last question is the question we ask all of our guests. So what if, do you have a spiritual practice or a mindfulness practice or a self-care practice that you do that helps you stay centered or grounded in the work that you do? Um, there are a few things that come to mind. Um, part of public history practice is connecting with the populations you're writing about. I'm a very white person, but I've written black history. That means I've gone and I've interviewed African-Americans who have history, you know, to ground that, to be mindful that my knowledge and my experience is very, very limited and will always be very limited. So engaging with people who actually endured that history. Um, there's large aspects of the black history that we wrote that is based upon oral history. Um, which is funny because some historians hate oral history, but that's a whole nother topic. Um, working with a black church to you know preserve their history, that's something else I did in town with greater friendship, things like that. Um, being aware that there's always a very different side to the story. On a personal level, um, because of those very depressing aspects of history that I frequently have to research, um, part of the nasty part of history research, if you want to study race, is you're going to be typing pejoratives a lot into your search engines. You're going to be looking for the usage of pejoratives. You're going to see these words thrown in your face every day, which, again, the people themselves have endured personally, but it's sickening. It's depressing to have to do this. So I always try and make sure I am keeping my love of history fresh by mixing topics I'm writing about at a different time. So I am at this very moment editing the Black History Manuscript for the University of Washington Press, but I'm also writing about the creation of the name Anchorage, why it's named Anchorage, and the other names that the city very nearly could have been. And also to keep certain times for myself sacrosanct and apart from history. I am not defined by being a historian as something I do. Um, so I keep certain days of the week just apart from that. Don't do history research. Don't answer emails as best as I can. Um, and so I can, you know, come back fresh and always love the discipline. Too often you read older historians and I sometimes wonder, do they even like the process? 
Well, thank you so much for sharing all of that with us, your practice, but also your knowledge and how you've interacted with Anchorage's history. I know that your work has been hugely helpful for us with this podcast, so it's been really fun to talk with you. Um, So just thanks for taking time. We really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Our thanks to David Reamer for joining us for this episode. I know I learned a lot, and I hope you did as well. I want to make you aware of one more thing before signing off. It has been a long, hard year for all of us. Maybe you, like me, are in need of a space to process all that's gone on and how it's affected us. The sponsors of this podcast, the Anchorage Urban Training Collaborative, is offering a series of online workshops designed to help process the moment we are in and cultivate hope as we move into the future. The Ampersand series are interactive, reflective experiences designed to help participants embrace 2021 with a renewed sense of wholeness and sustainability for life and work. Each of the three topics unfolds over a period of three weeks. In April, the series focuses on the lost and found of COVID and will provide exercises that bridge the experiences of loss and the discovery of giving voice to pain and learning to see good in hard places. We live in a constant state of tension between our desire to rest and produce, often without balance. The Give and Receive series in May examines the results of this imbalance, escapism, and frenzy, and the possibility of living in an integrated way rather than alternating between those two modes of living. Finally, in June, the topic will be ancient and modern. In these sessions, we will examine how spirituality can be considered how you handle the madness, We will survey the essence of a variety of seasoned spiritual practices while offering contemporary illustrations. We hope you will consider joining us for the Ampersand series. A free introductory experience will take place April 1 from noon to 1 p.m. Alaska time. To find out more, go to anchorageutc.org slash ampersand. That's anchorageutc.org slash A-M-P-E-R-S-A-N-D. Thank you. The Anchored City Podcast is grateful for a grant from Resonate Global Mission that in part makes this podcast possible. We are also grateful for our partnership with Street Psalms. Check them out at streetpsalms.org. And we're grateful for you, our listeners. If you are grateful for what you are hearing, please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes and recommend us to your friends. Resources used to make this episode can be found in the show details. The Anchorage City Podcast is hosted by Joel Kickenfeld and is a production of the Anchorage Urban Training Collaborative. The mission of the collaborative is to train the head, heart, and hands of urban leaders to love their city and seek its peace. When we say peace, we mean the desire to see a world where all things are the way they are supposed to be for all people. Find us online at anchorageutc.org and on social media at Anchorage UTC. Our theme song is by Anchorage's own, Monica Lettner.